Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Good morning, Liberty Bible Church in the Worship Center. My name is Tim, the lead pastor here, and really glad you're with us this morning. Especially if you're a guest, this is your first time. We're really glad that you are here. If you're wondering, hey, why are we doing video uh, in uh, preaching instead of live um, and in person? Well, a couple things as a reminder before we jump in. One, here in my first few weeks as pastor, I wanted to make sure that I was able to, to speak to both Worship Center and Sacred Ground for you to get to know me a little bit and to hear from me. Um, and, and so that's why we're doing video, at least for a time. And secondly, as a reminder, we're in the process of, of changing and figuring out how to work service times to make sure there's live preaching in both venues soon. So that's coming soon. More to come on that. For this morning, our text is 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, to 1 John 3, verse 10. So I'm going to read the scriptures for us and hear them now. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. It is hard to do the right thing. When I was 16, just before I got my driver's license, the state of Indiana passed a new law. I was one of the first of my friends to get my driver's license, and it came the summer, uh, and I was super excited to be able to drive my friends around, to be the one who now got to chauffeur. Instead of asking our parents for a ride, I got to give the rides. But the tyrants who led the state of Indiana at this time passed a law that when you got your license at 16, For 90 days, no one was allowed to be in the car with you. That was the law. Passed right before I got my driver's license. And sure enough, summer comes. My friends want to get into the car with me. 
And even though it could, like there could be serious consequences, I could lose my license, letting my friends in the car, it was hard to do the right thing. If you are a, a Christian, an atheist, somewhere in between, there's, I, I bet something in your life right now you wish you could stop doing. That you could stop doing what you're doing right now, but it's hard. Why? And to some extent, John makes it worse here because he says something that's pretty convicting if you're someone who follows Jesus. In verse 9, he says that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. The King James Version is even more intense. It says, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. It seems like John is saying, if you're a Christian, you should never sin. You should always do the right thing. So that raises a lot of questions. What is sin? Why do we sin in the first place? And how can we do the right thing? So let's let those three questions unravel all of what John is saying here and this fact that it is so hard to do the right thing. So first, what is sin? Well, sin can almost feel like a joke to us in our days. The idea of sin, judgment, has been uh, the butt of a joke in many cases. And one of my favorites is the Far Side cartoon where there's a bunch of people milling around in hell and they're drinking coffee and someone lets out, even the coffee is cold. They thought of everything. Right, sometimes sin, judgment can feel like a joke to us. But John unpacks sin and he says a few things here that are helpful for us as we begin this conversation. First, he says that sin is lawlessness. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And what that's saying is there are, there are boundaries in the universe, fences God has set up. And sin is when we cross those boundaries. We work against the laws he's put in place. We rebel against God. So sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion. This raises the question, why? Why are we rebelling? The second thing John says about sin is that it is participating in the works of the devil. That sounds intense, I know. Again, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, maybe you hear that and that makes total sense. Maybe you hear that and you think far side, this is strange. Um, but let me, let me unpack this with the idea, something called Godwin's Law. Maybe you're familiar with this, but Godwin's Law is this. The longer an online discussion goes, the more likely a Nazi comparison becomes. And with long enough discussions, it is a mathematical certainty. In other words, the longer you argue with someone, eventually someone calls the other person Hitler. That's what happens. And the reason for that is while uh, we may disagree over what is right or wrong in some cases, we all recognize there is some evil in the world that is unique and intense and grotesquely wrong. And what John is saying is sin is, is participate, participating in the destruction of God's good world. It's participating in the works of the devil. The third thing John says about sin is that it is not loving your brother or sister. Right? Verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
And we all agree this is wrong, to not love a brother or sister in Christ. Again, when John uses the word brother here, he's talking about your siblings in Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we all recognize that it's wrong to not love our brothers or sisters in Christ. So why can it be so hard to love one another? It's a little bit of of what sin is for John in this passage. Obviously, we could say much more, but I want to ask the question, why Why do we sin? Why do we rebel against God's rules? Why do we participate in the works of God, of the destruction of God's good creation? And why is it so hard for us to love our brother and sister in Christ? So that's what is sin. Secondly, why do we sin? That's what I've been asking. And the, the best definition of sin that I've ever heard is from Ignatius of Loyola, which he defines sin like this. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Sin is when I fail to trust that what God wants for me is my deepest happiness. And so when I rebel against God, when I cross his boundaries, it's because I believe He doesn't want me to be happy. And the the thing he's told me not to do, that actually is what will make me happy. So I'm going to do that instead. Or why I don't love my brother and sister in Christ sometimes is, is I think something else will make me happy. I want to do something else instead of loving or serving or giving myself to them. And so sin is when I decide I know what will make me happy more so than God. And you're asking, okay, Tim, where is that in John? Well, let me show you. In uh, verse 6, John says this. He says, no one who abides in him, in God, keeps on sinning. So the key to doing what is right for John is abiding in God. So what does it mean to abide in God? Well, John tells us in a chapter or so later when he writes this in 1 John 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So the first thing to abiding in God is to confessing that Jesus is his Son. John goes on. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So there's this this linear thought for John. You confess Jesus as the Son of God. Then you begin to abide in the presence of God. And to abide in the presence of God is to abide in love. And so if you take John's thinking in 1 John 4 and you bring it back to 1 John 3, no one who abides in him, in other words, no one who abides in his love keeps on sinning. So the key to you and I doing what is right is abiding in the love of God. So let me say something that's probably a little strong, a little controversial. The day that I believe God loves me is the day I stop sinning. The day I I rest fully secure in the love of God over my life is the day sin no longer has any compelling attraction to me. The doing what is right Not sinning requires abiding in the love of God. As David Benner says in The Gift of Being Yourself, an identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status 
as someone who is deeply loved by God. What is the most important thing about you? Is it your family and how they appear to other people? Is it your career and the success and where you want to go in life with your vocation? Is it your own personal morality? Do you, want to, do you want to be a really good person and appear a really good person to others? What is the most important thing about you? When someone else asks you, who are you, what do you say? Well, what Benner is saying and what John says, the person who abide, abides in God would say, is that the most important thing about me is that I am someone loved by God. So let's go back to uh, the tyrants of Indiana who passed that law when I was 16. Why it was so hard to look at my friends when they wanted to get into my car and break this new law uh, wasn't because uh, I, I just couldn't wait 90 days to ride with someone in my car. I'm an introvert. I don't mind riding alone in a car. But what that meant for me, getting my license first, was I got to have the love and acceptance of people wanting to ride somewhere with me, of me be the, being the one driving my friends somewhere. It made girls more likely to talk to me because I could take them on a date and drive them myself, right? There were so many reasons why having a car increased my status and could make me happy. But had I been someone who like just truly rested in the love of God, waiting 90 days before people could ride with me would not have been hard. To to rest secure in the love of God makes sin non-compelling. That imagine a 24-hour day where you just were convinced the entire day you were loved by God. Let's say someone cut you off in traffic, which in Chicagoland is not just likely, it is a mathematical certainty. Someone cuts you off in traffic, is your response going to be anger that they've now taken a spot, one in front of you, that now they're going to get to their destination slightly faster than, are you going to spend time dwelling on that, or who cares? You are someone loved by God. Or maybe you get a grade at school that's lower than what it should be, and your GPA is now threatened, and you're beginning to game that out. The scholarship you want might be in jeopardy. The college you want might be in jeopardy. All of okay things to to be nervous about, but if you received that grade and you knew you were loved by God and whatever it was in front of you was marked by his love, would it change your response? John says, whoever abides in God does not keep on sinning. And John says, to abide in God is to abide in love. The most important thing about you is that God loves you. But that all leads to a question, okay, that's nice, but how does it work? How do we become people who do what is right? Well, John lays out some theology here, and he he says three things that should give us the power by which to become people who actually change and, and begin to become people who do what is right. Three pieces of theology. First, he gives adoption, the theology of adoption. Now, today is Family Sunday, which means there are a lot of kids in the worship service. And kids, what's, what's fun about seeing you with your parents is we can typically tell who your parents are based on how you look. So a couple weeks ago, we were at the first, uh, our first soccer game. Someone I know from church comes and sits down to me. She asked me, hey, is your, your son out there playing? I said, yes. He said, which one is he? And I began to look, look for him. And before I found him, she found him and pointed at him and said, is that your son? He looks just like Misty. That was a surprise that she found him even before I did. And the reason is Micah looks just like 
Misty. You can tell who your parents are by looking at you. And John says we can tell who our Father is by looking at us. Those who practice righteousness are born of the Son, are born of God. And listen to what John says in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. He writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That we are adopted into the family of God. Now, the order is important here. What John does not say is those who practice righteousness get to be called sons and daughters of God. No, he says we are called sons and daughters of God. We are born of God, and then we begin to practice righteousness. That order is very important. And so what John is saying here is, is, is sin is, is, is something like the continuous habits. It's, 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 it's the things we do wrong, the patterns, the, the ways in which we live that aren't quite godly yet. And what John is saying, those who are born of him, those begin to change over time. Uh, the thing of it uh, like, like this, my, I have three boys, and the way that you know they are a Spanberg is not because they're like ripping out their hair and trying to duct tape at their face as a beard, try to be bald with a beard like their dad. No, you can, they're born into it. And you can just see it. The resemblance is there. And John is saying, the way you become a Christian is not by trying really hard and then you get to be called a son or a daughter of God. No, you're called a son or a daughter of God and then you begin to practice righteousness. But how does that work? Well, the second piece of theology John hands out to us is this image of a seed. Um, now let's speak to the, the central tension of this passage. Right? Verse 9, uh, as the King James puts it, Whoever, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. What is going on there? Uh, well, a few things. First, this is why it's good to, to read through whole books of the Bible at a time and not just read one verse. Because already earlier in John's book, he's talked about what happens when Christians sin. That's in 1 John 2 verse 1 when he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So John's already assumed Christians do Sin. So reading the whole book, we're like, okay, we know John is not saying Christians never sin. The second thing that's important is the verbal form here is a continuous aspect, which I just spoke to again. John is not talking about single acts of sin. He's talking about habits and patterns, ways of being in the world that are sinful and lead us always to sin. And what he's saying is, not that all of those things change overnight when we become Christians. But instead, a seed is planted, and the undoing of all those things has already begun, even though they still exist to some extent. So think of it like this. Kids out there, I'm assuming you know what happens when you plant a tree. Right? You take the seed, you dig up some ground, you plant the seed, you cover the ground up, and what happens the next day? Is there a giant tree that uh, comes up overnight after you plant the seed? No, it takes years. A seed is planted, and underneath the ground, there's all kinds of things happening that we don't see. And over time, there will be a tree that grows in its place. And this image of a seed is saying that is how we change as Christians. God's seed is planted in you, which means over time, you will not make a practice of sinning. The patterns, the habits, the ways of being in the world have been changed by you because there's a seed planted in you. And even though that takes time, there are things happening that are doing that in you. So the question isn't, 
Who do you look like the day after you become a Christian? The question is, who do you look five years after you become a Christian? Who do you like, look like 10 years, 20? Uh, one of my uh, favorite trips I've ever taken was with two of my boys to Kings Canyon National Park. And at Kings Canyon is a, a grove of sequoia trees. Some of the largest trees on earth, some of the oldest organisms we have on earth. There are sequoia trees in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park that, are, that were planted before Jesus was born. They're over 2,000 years old. And the thing is, after they were planted, you didn't see anything. And now, 2,000 years later, there are these enormous trees that have withstood fires, have withstood rains and floods, have withstood storms, and are giant living things. So if you're sitting there today thinking, man, I, I am a Christian and I am still not the person I want to be. Well, friends, there, are, there is a seed at work. There are roots being planted. There are all kinds of things happening underneath the surface. You may not see yet, but there is a tree growing up into you. That what will you look like 50 years from now? What will you look like 2,000 years from now? What will you look like 2 billion years from now, the seed has been planted. And the final piece of theology John gives to us is, is the future. He says in verse 2, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That you and I will be perfect like Jesus, John says to us, when Jesus returns and raises us to new life. So what will we be like? Well, all of 1 John says basically two things. So throughout all of these sermons, we're basically saying two things to you. One, God loves you. And two, you now go and love others. God loves you, so love one another. And so the whole point of the Christian life is that, is to have an ever-deepening experience of the love of God and then for the people around you to experience the love of God through you because you love them as Christ has loved you. That's the whole point of your Christian life. As David Benner writes, he says, the point of God's love is to remake us into the image of his love. The point of the spiritual journey is not simply to be received back into the welcoming arms of the love of the Father, but to become like the Father. That's what John says. When he appears, we will be like him. If you're a Christian, that's the whole point of your Christian life, is to ever deepen in your experience of his love for you and then to love others as God has loved you. So, two thoughts along those lines, and then I'm done. First, it means you and I, when we come to church, we're not coming to church to be a slightly decent person. We're not coming to church to just learn more information about God. We're not coming to church to get a free donut and some coffee. We come to church because we are going to be perfect like Christ one day, which means we don't settle for anything less than that. That keep the return of Christ in mind before you, not just the, the prophecies related to that, but what he's going to make you when he returns. And so right now, is it hard for you to be patient? Well, you are loved by a God who, whose love is, is unending. It's patient. It's kind. Let him love you, and over time, you will be loved into a patient person. Are you gentle? 
Is it hard for you to be gentle right now? Do you respond in anger when other people do something you don't like? Well, Jesus in Matthew 11 says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Let this God love you into being a patient person. Is it hard for you to be generous with your time serving other people when they make demands or needs on you or with your finances to give generously to others? Well, Jesus, the person who loves you, God the Father, gave you his own son. Jesus emptied out his riches to become poor so that you and I might become rich. Let this God love you into being a rich person. What I'm saying is there is a seed planted in you today that is going to make you into the image of Christ. So when you walk into church, don't settle for thinking you can be a slightly nicer person if you're here for a long time. No, God is making you you into a spiritual sequoia tree. Let him go to work. Let that seed go to work in you. But secondly, the other thing I want to say is we come to a church of community of people then who know what we will become. I want our church to be a community of people who when we look at one another, we imagine what that person will be when they are perfect and made whole in Christ. When we see someone else's flaws, we don't take that as an opportunity to speak about them when they're not in the room, to judge them harshly or to look at them condescendingly. No, we say, okay, I know who you are now. Someday you won't be that person. And I'm going to believe, I'm going to help you be loved and believed into becoming the person God will make you into being. Has anyone ever done that for you? Or you did something just totally ridiculous, totally broken, and and rather than that person just pointing their finger at you and, and speaking all of the bad things that you've done, instead they said to you, I know that's who you are today, but I know that's not who you will be in the future. So I love you anyway. Friends, this is something Jesus did all the time when you read through the Gospels. One of my favorite stories of Jesus is he had two of his disciples come to him and ask him, Jesus, let us sit at your left and your right hand in the kingdom of God. Basically, they were saying, let us be most important. We want to be vice president and secretary of state. Let us be the most important. And this request was just ridiculous. The disciples were off to the side. It was a total power grab, immature. But Jesus asked them a question. He says, Okay, are you willing to be baptized with the baptism to which I'm going to be baptized? And what he meant was, I, I will die. Are you willing to die for the kingdom of God? And these two brothers, totally naive, are like, yeah, man, we're in. Like, we're ready to die. And of course, in a few weeks, when Jesus is crucified at the end of this, this, uh, his story, They all abandon him, right? They don't even pray for him when Jesus asks them to pray for him. They fall asleep. Like these guys are not ready for the baptism, in other words. So this is totally ridiculous. There's no way they're ready for the baptism. And is that what Jesus tells them? Hey, listen, guys, you're about to abandon me. You're not ready for the baptism. You are not in any way, shape, or form ready for the to to sit at my left or right hand. Is that what Jesus says? No, that's not what he says. What he says to them is, yes, you will be baptized with the the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized. And that's what happened. One of those men was named James. He was the first martyr of the early church. The other brother was named John, who wrote this letter we're reading, who himself would be in prison, would be in exile, and his life would be threatened for the name of Jesus. And Jesus knew that. He knew the men he was making them into. And rather than use this 
sinful, selfish request of them to put them in their place. He says, you're right. That is who you are becoming. So friends, you and I, may we do that for one another. To look at one another in the church and say, I know who you are today, but I'm in on the secret of who you will become. And I'm going to love you into that person. Is it hard to do the right thing? Yes. And that's why you should know Jesus. He knows everything wrong with you and loves you anyway. He underwent his baptism, death, humiliation, crucifixion on a cross, so that you could be adopted into his family and call God your father. Who else has loved you like that? So when it comes time to do what is right, even when it's hard, he loves you, and to be happy, that's all you need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your love has planted a seed in us to call us sons and daughters and change us into people who will one day be like you. So Father, for those who have never placed their faith in you, in in Jesus, in the Son of of God, would you open their hearts? would Would you lead them to go speak to someone, to ask the questions, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And for those of us who love you and have called you our own and have responded to you in faith, would you deepen our experience of your love today that we might be changed? We pray this all for the glory of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.